This audio recording is of our regular Sunday service at Restoration Road Church in Snohomish, Washington. The reader is Amber Miller. The speaker is Sam Ford. More information can be found at rdchurch.com. Scripture comes from 1 Peter chapter 1, uh, verses 3 through 12. Uh, Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what persons or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you, and the things that have now been announced to you uh, through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. This is God's Word. Well, we are spending the next um, few weeks, few months really, in the first epistle of Peter, looking at what it means to be this thing called the people of the way. That's a phrase that you'll first find in the book of Acts several times, beginning in Acts chapter 9, where Saul, a Jew, is persecuting and traveling to different cities to arrest Christians, to seek out and find Christians, to put them in prison, to potentially kill them. And he says, I'm looking for people who belong to the way. That's what they were called. Simply, being a people of the way means living in such a way that your life and your lifestyle demands a gospel explanation. Why do you live that way? Why do you think the way you do? Why do you do the things you do? The question is, how do we get there? Well, as we look into Peter here, we're going to see that becoming a people of the way doesn't start with lists and and descriptions of ways of behaving. On the contrary, Peter begins by saying there's a way of believing that will actually impact all of our behavior. I am convinced that our failure to do what God saved us to do is rooted in a failure to believe who God has saved us to be. And that's where Peter's going to spend his time in the first part of this letter. Now last week we saw in his greeting that Peter identifies his audience as elect exiles. People who are not part of this world where their home is not this place and yet they're actually literally in their homeland. He says these are the people chosen by grace for God to possess as His people. They are a people that are saved by grace to love. And they are people that are moved by grace to obey Jesus, to live differently. That's how he identifies and describes who he's writing to. But then, as we get into verses 3 through 12, that we'll spend our time today, he continues to declare facts and truths about the Christian identity. Like this text that we are going over is more descriptive, describing than it is prescriptive or prescribing what we ought to do. It gives us indicative statements about who we are and not imperative statements of commands of what we are to do. In fact, Peter doesn't call for any kind of behavioral response to the truth 
of the gospel until verse 13, which we will not hit today, that says, therefore, knowing all of this, having had your minds readied with the truth, live like this. And so Peter's going to front load this pastoral letter with everything that his people and us need to remember about who we are and what we have in Christ. That's where it starts. Before he compels them to live any differently, he is going to convince them that they are different in Christ. Yes, he wants them to live differently in and differently than the world, but that's not even possible until they understand how they have been made different in Christ. And so, he begins his letter with praise to God. That's where he starts. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Praise for God. This is the kind of statement that you go, yeah, duh. But praise for God should never, ever, ever, ever get old. Because as Lamentations 3.22 says, the steadfast love of the Lord never, ever, ever ceases. His mercies never, ever come to an end. They are new every morning. All that to say, all that we think, all that we do, all that we are in the Christian life must begin with praise to God. Every morning should start with praise to God. And I know what you're thinking if you're anything like me. No, I'm not super Christian who popped out of his bed and went, praise be to God, right? It was more likely than, what was that noise? Has a dog gone out to go potty? Why are you hitting your sister? What should I make for breakfast? Right? But overall, like with the intentionality of our mornings to begin with praise to God who woke me up with breath and air in my lungs. Praise be to God. Every morning should start identifying that God is God. That He is good and He is gracious and He is great. And he is generous. Every prayer should start with praise to God. Every time we read the Bible, it should start with praise to God. Every good work that we endeavor to do for him in this world should begin with praise to God. Every party, every funeral, every event of our life should start with praise to God. First and foremost, our faith and our lives must always begin and focus with what God has done and at a very, very, very distant second what we have done. But if we're honest and truthful, that's not often how we think about our life in Christ if you are a Christian. If I were to ask you, which is a very common question among Christian culture, how's your walk? How are you doing spiritually? And as you begin to sweat... Great. Good. Things are good. Me and God, we're good. Right? But in truth, let me just bring it down to a really specific thing. When someone asks you that question, where does your mind naturally first go? Because if it first goes, if the first thought is to what you have done or not done. You're off gospel. There's plenty of things I could list that I have not done, as I'm sure you could, and things that I think are pretty great that I've done, as I'm sure you could do. But our thoughts about our faith and our walk with Christ must always begin with praise to God for what 
He has done for us despite our brokenness and sin and any efforts we may think are really impressive to Him and are not, but I'm sure He loves and is not grieved by them, begins with praise to God. It's amazing as you read the letters of Paul and Peter how similar they start to sound in some ways, though they're very different. I think Ephesians is one of the greatest letters in the Scriptures, and he began his letter to the Ephesians the same way, calling them saints. And he says in the very beginning, blessed be God who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. What does he say? He starts to list them by choosing us and adopting us, and redeeming us, and forgiving us, and making us holy, and securing for us an inheritance, and sealing us with the Spirit as a guarantee. Imagine starting your day like that. I am redeemed. I am still God's kid. I am loved. I am forgiven. I am sealed by the Holy Spirit. And though I screwed up royally yesterday, I am still His kid today. I think that might change the way we engage with our day. It's only after we understand what by grace God has done for us in Christ that we can possibly understand what we are to do for Christ and why. Our way of living is going to flow directly from our way of believing. That's why Peter starts here. There are certain things we must believe and we must constantly preach to ourselves before we even try to live as we are commanded to live. So he continues. Our motivation for living this new way of life is rooted in the fact that we actually have a new life in Christ. It says, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. Notice it doesn't say, hey, God's really merciful. You should be reborn. Right? He's describing what God has done. He's describing who we are. We are passive in this in many ways. Great mercy is where he starts. Grace is undeserved favor. You get what you'd never deserved, and mercy is you're not getting what you do. And his great mercy, right? What does that mean? That right there, it's great. You and I are great sinners. We're professionals at it. We are awesome at it, at doing it and hiding it and inventing it. We are great sinners, and that requires great mercy. But as rebellious, broken, sinful people, none of us deserve or earns this new life. God did not look down at any one of us, and He will never look down at any man or woman and go, man, he's pretty righteous. I want him on my team. He'll be showing great mercy. It's a gift of grace. And again, if you consider Paul's letter to the Ephesians, it starts very similar. In the second chapter to that letter, Paul has some really dark descriptions of men and women in their sin. You should read it. It says men are dead in their sin. Paul describes them as following the devil and the course of this world. He describes them as children of wrath, sons of disobedience. Now, that's not a real positive dossier for us. But then he writes this after all that description. But God, and I'm still going to do a sermon series on the but gods of Scripture because they're awesome and this is one of them. You're dead. You're a sin of disobedience. You're a child of wrath. You are horrible. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. That's what the 
new birth is about, right? No dead man, and this is like, oh yeah, no dead man goes, I want to be alive now. No child of wrath says, you know what, I'm going to adopt myself into that family. No blind man goes, oh, I, I'd like to see today. No. No sinful man rebirths himself any more than you birthed yourself the first time. Ask mom. You didn't help. Right? We've been born again by the power and the grace and mercy of God. And you know what Peter's just doing? He's repeating like a good student what Jesus taught him. Jesus taught this very thing in the middle of the night to a man named Nicodemus who's a Pharisee, right? Kind of sneaks out from his Pharisee party, comes over to talk with Jesus like, okay, tell me more about this, but don't tell anybody I'm here. And he begins to tell him. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one's born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus, because there's this new language to him, like, wait, what? How, how can a man be born when he is old? The literalist, right? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And all the women said, no, thank you, praise Jesus. Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes. You hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes, and so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Jesus says, look, God does something. An awakening occurs. Not Star Wars, but we could talk about that. An awakening occurs, a rebirth occurs by the power of the Spirit of God, making it possible, he says, to see the kingdom of God and to enter it. We are reborn in Christ. Now, the idea of rebirth, though, implies something, right? We're actually not reborn until we have died. What I mean is that, as weird as it sounds, before God saves us, He kills us with Christ. There can be, I mean, this makes sense. Think of the gospel, right? There can be no resurrection without a crucifixion. No, no new life without Death of the first life. So the idea of this spiritual second birth, if you will, requires a death of sorts. See, we have not just been given a better life. Jesus didn't come and say, hey, here are the things to improve your life. He says, no, your old life is ruined. We have to start completely over. You need an entirely new life. Those who put their faith in Jesus die with Jesus and are raised with Jesus to new life. The Bible says this over and over and over again in different ways. In Galatians and in Romans, the Bible says, I have been crucified with Christ in Galatians 2.20. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loves me. The Bible says that our old self our old self with all the guilt and all the shame and all the weaknesses and all the mistakes and all the less thans and, and all the failures, that old self was killed with Jesus, buried with Jesus, gone forever. The Bible says that we have become not better creations, not improved creations, new creations. The old is gone, the new has come. And now, the Bible says that we walk in the newness of life. Brand newness. Fresh, new car smelling newness of life. And what that means is like when you talk about being born again, this isn't just um, accepting a few new facts about Jesus or, or 
adopting a few new behaviors like Jesus, this is a fundamental transformation of our heart. It's a replacement of our hearts. It is new heart, new desires, newness of life. And so, as Peter's calling people to live a certain lifestyle, he can do that because he's saying, because you believe in Jesus, you put your faith in Jesus, you have something new. And he continues. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, according to His great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Right? This new life generates this, this new hope. And this hope is related to the fact that our eternal destiny has been changed by one irrefutable fact. And what is that? The resurrection of Jesus Christ. Do we understand why Paul is so strong in his language in 1 Corinthians 15? Like, if the resurrection's not true, man, we are pitiful. If the resurrection's not true, what are we doing? If the resurrection's not true, I'm telling lies about God. The resurrection is the key to Christianity. It is the key to our hope. The question isn't, am I living like a Christian? Am I doing this? Do, I Do you believe Jesus Christ rose from the dead? Is He alive? Is He returning? Did He conquer sin, Satan, and death? Did Jesus rise from the dead? That is where our hope rests in. It's not just some whimsical hope. It's not just some fantastic, wishful hope. It is a hope rooted in an historical fact of the past that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. And there was a time when that was like, oh my gosh, and we've become so dead to it. I talked with one of my family members. So I wasn't sure whether they love Jesus anymore. We were raised to love Jesus. And the crazy thing is they still admired Jesus. I said, but did he rise from the dead? Ah, no. That tells you everything. If you believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, everything is different and you have hope. You have a hope that the world does not have. And if Jesus did not rise from the dead, we are a pitiful, hopeless people. But I have banked my life on the fact that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. And Peter's always calling his people to look ahead, look to the future, to this, this living hope that comes through the resurrection of the living Christ. And it's a living hope. I guess a strange phrase, living hope. And I believe it's a living hope because unlike any other religion, any other spiritual group, movement, whatever, their leaders are all dead. But not ours. Is it any wonder that they have great debates about where the burial place of Jesus is? No, it's here. No, it's here. No, it's here. No, it's here. Well, he's only in there for three days, so I guess it's hard to figure out. I can tell you where my grandma's buried. She's still there, right? But not Jesus. It's a living hope because in many ways, we have not fully realized all the blessings of salvation that God has for us. Did you know that Jesus has saved us? And Jesus, according to Scripture, is saving us. And Jesus, according to Scripture, will save us fully. And it's a living hope because the reality of our eternal destiny the reality of the return of Jesus, the reality of life with Him in eternity in the glorious new heavens and new earth is supposed to be this thing that's growing. Right? The birth of a new life, your rebirth comes with the birth of this living hope and if your hope remains as a one-month infant forever, that's weird and wrong. It's supposed to grow. Your hope increases. Your hope becomes stronger every year of our lives. 
And it doesn't necessarily mean you're looking forward to your death, but you are looking forward to the life after death. My wife and I are a little weird. She's not here. She's a little weirder than me. <laughs> Recently, though, I'm, I'm older than her, and I'm not that old, but I'm old enough. And I've seen that the older I get, the more I begin to think about the next life. And she's to the point where she's like, oh, yeah, it'd be great to die. I'm like, what? what's wrong with you, right? And the reality is, though, when the people who understand this most, the people who come like, they, they, the, the hope of, the living hope of Jesus is most tangible, are those people here like, C word, you have cancer. You have six months to live. And suddenly, everything that you once put your hope in including just the fact that you hoped you would live to see seven months, it's gone. And so in many ways, I understand what my wife means when she says that. And in many ways, as I sit oftentimes with people who have heard that kind of news, I envy them a little bit. As much as it's difficult to hear, they are many times those who know most clearly what this world is about and what their lives are about. The fact of the resurrection, though, gives us this inheritance, right? Verse 4 says it's a living hope and it's an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. This future guaranteed inheritance. And you think about an inheritance, right? I don't expect to, be, to get an inheritance, from my in-laws or my parents. God bless them. I don't think they have a millions of dollars of nest egg lying there. That would be rad if they did, but I'm pretty sure they don't. They probably have some weird secrets and bills that I'm going to have to pay that I didn't know about. Thank you so much. But can you imagine, and maybe there's one or two of you here, like you're like, oh man, I don't got nothing now, but I got this in it. <laughs> We're talking... Billions. And you're imagining all the things you're going to do and buy. Like, oh, it's going to be great. And because it gives you a sense of security, right? Gives you a sense of joy. A sense of relief. We have an inheritance that's incredible. And we don't talk about it enough. You know, our salvation is progressive. And what I mean by that, it, it comes to fullness over time. And I'll use some big words. Justification, right? Big theological word to talk about your innocence through faith in Christ. You have been justified by faith. That frees you from the penalty of sin. You're no longer condemned, no longer sitting under the wrath of God because Jesus Christ has, has paid your debt. Jesus Christ has stood in your place. Jesus Christ has died for you. You have been justified. You've been declared innocent and righteous. But we don't just go to heaven at that moment, which would be rad. Dang, another one saved, gone. Sanctification, right? That's, that's life. And then sanctification is this progressive growth where we've been freed from the penalty of sin, but over time we're, we're free from the power of sin. Over time we're, we're able to resist, if you will, our flesh and press into the Spirit, but never fully, never completely, never perfectly. But what Peter's talking about is this time of glorification where we'll be free from the presence of sin completely. No more rebellion, no more disease, no more brokenness, no more fear, no more discontentment, nothing. Peter points to this final glorification where we are going to receive the inheritance of eternal life, a life of wholeness, a life of pure prosperity and satisfaction that is imperishable and, and undefiled and unfading. And you take those three words, Everything in this world will perish. 
Everything in this world is less than perfect and defiled, and everything in this world is fading, given enough time. Anything you could hope in, anything you look forward to, money, that didn't take much to lose that. Relationships, people, tragedy will strike that. Health, you get old enough, that starts fading pretty quick. Beauty, look in the mirror. I didn't say a name. I didn't say a name. Open up that wedding album. Dang, I look good. Or when your kids go, man, you looked really good back then. Like, what does that even mean? <laughs> like, yeah, I did. But life with Jesus, right, life with Jesus, it, it will never die. Life with Jesus will never become defiled because there's no sin to defile. It'll always be perfect. And this one's interesting. Life with Jesus will never fade, right? We have this vision of heaven, I think. Maybe I'm only the weird one that does. But like, we're all going to be standing there in these crowds. Praise Jesus, praise Jesus, praise Him, praise Him, praise Him, praise, praise Jesus, praise Jesus. Like, okay, we've been doing this for like a million years, guys. And I'm just like thinking, man, is there anything else? All right. I don't mind singing to Jesus, but like, we got like, you know, eternity here, and maybe we could do some projects or hobbies or something. Like, we have this idea that like, uh, it, it'll get old, because guess what? Everything in this life gets old. Even the greatest of pleasures gets old. Can you imagine the pleasure of being with Jesus, something that never gets old? Like, even in this life, our pleasure in Jesus gets old sometimes, but not then. It'll never lose its beauty. It'll never lose its excitement. It'll never lose the freshness. It'll never dim. That's hard to imagine because everything in our life dims. Everything. Can we imagine a mindset where you're thinking about that constantly? Man, it just gets you like, whoa! Yeah. It does for me. I don't know what about you. I mean, it's fine to hope for things in your lives. I don't want to say like you shouldn't hope. We hope we have hopes for our children. We have hopes in our jobs and hopes for, you know, vacations. And there's nothing. The Lord, all good things are from God. But when you're talking about ultimate hope, ultimate hope, I mean, hope where when all those other things that you hope for get taken away, what's that? Because I'm telling you, you will not find hope of that sort in this world. You won't. You will only find that in Jesus. Christian's hope is different than any other kind of hope because as the Bible says, it's being guarded. That inheritance that's waiting for us, it's like God's guarding it. He's guarding actually not just it. He's guarding it says, who? Us. Right? So he's shielding up. Like, well, what could overcome me? Well, there's all kinds of external enemies. You think like, oh, that will be too hard. That'll... No, nothing can separate you from the love of God. The height, depth, angel, principality, nothing can separate you from that. He's like, dang, no enemies. What about the internal ones? What about it's like, oh, I don't know, doubt, fear. I don't know if I'm going to make it. I don't know if I'm good enough. You're putting your trust in Jesus, and you're not even saved by the quality of your faith. You realize that? You're saved by the quality of His. We are continually kept by the power of God from escaping God's salvation and from any enemies we feel like might take it away from us. If Jesus saved you, I'm 100% certain, 110, that Jesus will keep you. Now, if you're saving yourself, good luck. Good luck. But that's not what's happened. Jesus is the one who's come and shown me mercy. Jesus is the one who's come and given me new life. Jesus is the one who says, I have an inheritance ready for you. I'm adopting you and forgiving you and loving you. You're mine, and you can't do anything about it. Praise Jesus for that. Like a builder, though, Peter kind of keeps going. He lays his foundation and he just builds upon it. 
And he says that grace to come, which it's a grace, that huge gift to come brings grace now. He says our new birth is going to generate new hope, which is going to generate new joy. Like, it gets better, it gets better, it gets better. He says, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. Oh, here we go. Here's the truth of the Christian life coming through. Keeps going. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter says that we find joy in this future grace, powerful enough to help us endure the various trials that come into our lives. That's what helps us endure. Not even God's mercy and grace in removing that trial. In the trial, through the trial, despite the trial, the joy of our future salvation helps us endure. It may surprise you, I hope it doesn't, but it probably shouldn't, but the believer's life possesses just as much grief as the non-believer's life. Dare I say, it may have a little bit more. You're like, what? what? I thought when you became a Christian, everything was prosperous and awesome and free of suffering. And like, I don't know what Bible you're reading, but that's not how Jesus' life unfolded. And he was perfect. And if we're called to be like Jesus, be hidden in Jesus, uh-oh, we're going to experience some suffering. And addressing those who've experienced that kind of loss, loss from death, those are some of the worst trials that we can experience. Notice what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians. He says, we don't want you to be uninformed. Now, I think it's so amazing to consider what Paul doesn't write here. So he's talking to people who have lost loved ones, who've experienced the, one of the most difficult trials that we can experience in this life. He says, you know, we don't want you to be like too upset. Doesn't say that. We don't want you to grieve or be sad. Doesn't say that. As Christians, I think we maybe need permission, but need to do better at grieving and weeping. But he says, I just don't want you to be uninformed about those who have died, those who are asleep. Now, you may not grieve, implying that they will, as others do who have no hope. It's a different kind of grief. Peter says that the joy that comes from new life and our future grace helps us to get through these kinds of trials. Christians experience trial, but they experience them with hope and therefore joy. Now, to be clear, the kind of trial that Peter is going to talk about most in this letter is not merely the kind of trial that comes from the hardness of living in a broken world full of broken stuff. In fact, Peter's actually referring most of the time to the kinds of trials that arise from living as a Christian in a world that doesn't like Christians. I thought one commentator said it really well. He said, the contrast between the Christian community's belief in the gospel, as well as its commitment to holy living, and our culture's unbelief in the gospel and its permissiveness ought to generate more sparks than it does. There's a tension that naturally should exist. A living hope, without doubt, flows out of this new life, but so does opposition to that life. And I was thinking about this this morning and just made this observation. It seems like people, in terms of the opposition they receive, even as Christians, today most of it comes from our political views. In other words, who we vote for, who we don't vote for, who we speak against, who we are silent about. Man, that gets all kinds of opposition. People get all 
kinds of all upset about that. But Jesus, not so much. And I wonder sometimes it's because we talk so much about political things way more than we ever talk about the things of Christ. Maybe that's why there's not many sparks or there's sparks in the wrong places. The Bible says really clearly in 2 Timothy, if you are going to endeavor to live a godly life, you're going to face persecution. When you speak and live, like think about this, when you speak and live as if, or according to the truth, I should say, that Jesus is the only way, the only truth, and the only life, you're going to cause some waves. Consider what Jesus himself said. Blessed are you when people hate you. What? And they exclude you. Huh? And revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of Jesus. Oh, that does not sound like a good experience. Rejoice in that day, he says. What? Leap for joy. Hey, I'm hated. I'm spurned. I'm excluded. Woo! That's what he says. You should be leaping for joy. I don't, I don't know if that's my first response. Usually to well, Facebook something new, right? Unfriend. What does he say? Just like Peter. Stop, stop looking here. Your reward is great in heaven. Set your mind on the future hope and inheritance that comes with being the child of the king. The reward of heaven, the future hope of the Christian is, is supposed to help us get through these kinds of trials. Why? Well, because the hope-filled Christian, as they're experiencing the trial, they understand that this trial will not last forever. And the hope-filled Christian knows that the trials have their purpose in Christ. They purify, according to Peter here, and strengthen our faith. They're good for us. They they take out what's not supposed to be there in our faith, and they build in what's not there. And it's hard for us to, in the midst of the trial, appreciate that. But more often, for those of us who've had those kinds of trials, whether it be opposition or just hardship, you look past it and go, man, I would never choose to do that again, but I grew so much at that time. That's so, that's only someone who knows they're being prepared for eternity would say that. The hope-filled Christian knows that these trials will result in the glory of God. And even if they don't get to see that glory. Now we say that because sometimes we can endure those trials even with joy as long as we can see the glory next week or next month or next year. And what Peter says, actually, they may not see it until the end. You may not see it until the revelation of Jesus Christ at the end. So we're supposed to have joy and, and hope and enduring this trial and trusting that at the end when Jesus shows up, everything makes sense. We go, oh, that was awesome, Lord. And I know you go like, really? That horrible thing that happened to me is awesome? Remember, when you're with Jesus for 70 million years. Think about that. That horrible experience you had is going to feel like stubbing your toe. And that awesome experience you hoped in is going to be like winning the third grade checkers championship. It's all going to be in perspective. And eternity does that for us. The Christian's joy, though, is not only in the future Peter gives us a little bit. He says here, though you have not seen him, 
You love Him. And though you do not see Him now, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. And somehow we experience that glory now. See, our our joy is, is filled with glory because as we live with this hope and we are filled with this joy because we're living in this hope, we go closer and deeper into the presence of Jesus where the glory of God is. And as we get closer in our walk with Jesus, we start to have a deeper trust in Him. And as our trust grows, our hope continues to grow. And as our hope grows, our joy grows. And as our joy grows, our love grows. And it starts to work together. And our faith and love for Jesus increases as we understand the layers and the layers of our salvation more and more. That's what it means by living. We find ourselves actually controlled and governed by the love of Christ and living more for Him and less for ourselves every day. Well, let's close this out with some really strange verses, which I don't think we changed. Oh, well. If you open your Bibles, you need to. If it's not going to be on the screen. The last two verses, three verses, says, Concerning this salvation... The prophets, so talking all the things, this, this final salvation, the fullness of salvation that, that we have talked about. That Peter's saying, when salvation is completed, and all the pieces that worked up to that, he says, concerning salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. These are the prophets of the Old Testament. They were inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. When was this going to happen? It was revealed to them that they were, not, they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which the angels long to look. What a crazy statement that is. If you open the commentaries, they're like, what a crazy statement that is. We don't know, but we'll see if we can figure that out. I want you to understand, and this is where I think Peter's going, and we're a couple thousand years removed from him even, but we live in the most amazing time in all of world history, and that's not because of social media. 2,000 years ago, Everything changed. The church age, if you will, began. And for thousands of years prior to that, the the prophets, right, they were devoted to searching and looking and finding, like, when is he going to come and who is he going to be and how is he going to suffer and what's going to happen? How is God going to rescue sinners and redeem sinners and reconcile sinners and restore everything back to the way it should be? And it never came. But it has for us. We have heard, you have heard the most amazing, important, and powerful facts in all of world history that Jesus Christ of Nazareth died for sinners. He was the Son of God who came in human flesh and He died to save sinners and to raise Himself for sinners and He's returning for sinners and He didn't come for those who say, well, I'll behave. He came for those who said and recognized, I'm rebellious, I'm weak, I'm broken, I cannot behave, I cannot do what I'm supposed to do, and I do everything that I'm not supposed to do. I believe. I believe. I believe you died in my place for my sins. I believe my Creator cares about me that much that He would come and die to ensure I could live with Him eternally. We know that's true. We're not waiting for it. We're not searching for it. It's happened. It's historical. And the thing about that last part, right? The gospel, the news of Jesus Christ and redemption as it begins to unfold and more people are saved and and the church gets bigger and the kingdom goes wider, like the angels are intrigued by that. Now, as you think about that, the angels have been there since the beginning of time. 
they've seen a lot to be impressed by. And yet, perhaps like little children, they're like peeking over. That's what it's like. It's like sneaking a peek. <laughs> Look at that! Wow! I know. <laughs> this is true. But you know what? We, we, we struggle to be impressed by the glories of the gospel anymore. I'm more impressed by stupid YouTube videos and the glories of the gospel. Angels are like, oh my God. They've seen everything. And we're like, eh. I mean, that's great, I guess. Jesus died. Yeah, cool. Are you kidding me? We've forgotten what's truly glorious. I love what C.S. Lewis writes. Everything he writes. He says, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. So for those who don't know Christ, I compel you, surrender your life, receive forgiveness and salvation that is freely offered you and experience new birth. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you, this moment, will be saved. And not only that, you'll be given a new life, you'll be given new hope, and you'll be given new joy eternally that can never be taken away. And for those of us who have claimed that for many years, I wonder if the gospel still impresses you enough to tell somebody about it. And perhaps your prayer ought to be different, not for new life, but renewed life. Perhaps like David, you should cry out to the Lord, restore to me the joy of my salvation. It has become dead, it has become unimpressive, and I know that it is the most glorious thing in the world. Restore to me something that I cannot do. Make me feel what I cannot. Restore to me the joy of my salvation, the hope of my inheritance. Because I'll tell you, the Bible is very clear. There is one name given in heaven through which men may be saved. And might I add, there is only one name given in heaven through which men might find purpose and hope and joy and satisfaction and strength and courage and definitely eternal life. Don't leave here without knowing Jesus. Let's pray.